Human beings are proficient at worship. We're good at it. And you may be thinking, what, he's, what is he talking about? How are we proficient in worship? Are, are lost people proficient in worship? And we know that everyone worships something. Many people worship many things. Our culture is full of worship. Our culture is full of worship at football stadiums yesterday and today. Our culture is full of worship in the shopping malls. Our culture is fully at worship um, in many cultural events in our world. There are sacrifices given and there are knees bowed and there are praises given. So our humanity, we are created to be worshipers. And the old English word for worship just means ascribing something worth-ship, that it is worthy of something. It is worthy of our time, our passions, our, our praises, our priorities, and the world shows that with things that are not the creator, not directed toward the creator of the universe. And the root of all worship without God is self-worship. At the very bottom level, it is, I want to do what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. We are God, and we worship ourselves, even as we find other things worthy of our passion. The word liturgy comes from a compound Greek word, combining two Greek words that mean, that mean that translated people and work. So it's literally the work of the people, and it came to mean public service in the Greek language. We use liturgy today to talk about uh, the way we order our worship service. Every church has a liturgy. Every church has an order and the content that fills that order. Every church that gathers, even the ones who say, we don't have any order, we're led by the Spirit, have an order that is led by the Spirit. Everyone has a liturgy of some sort or another. The question is, on what does each church base that liturgy? On what does each church base the things that they do in worship? And we live in a world where worship is understood, but the object of worship is not. Well, I'm not here to outline all of those cultural activities that, that receive worship from the world. What I am here to do is to focus us on a couple of ideas this morning. What theology drives us at the Bible Church of Cabot for what we do in worship? And how do we figure out the content of what we do in worship? I want to start, first of all, with why are you here? You personally. Why are you here this morning? Why do you gather on Sunday mornings for corporate worship at the Bible Church of Cabot? Just take a moment and think of why. What is your purpose? Well, this is what we do on Sunday mornings at 1030. Well, I'm supposed to be here. It's what believers do. You tell us to, and if I miss two or three Sundays, you'll call me. What is your reason for being here? Do you have a theological reason to come here on Sunday morning? One of the things we looked at this morning in our Sunday school class is the recovery of congregational participation. That the church at the time when Martin Luther stepped forth was the congregation had almost nothing to do in the worship. They sat and watched. We're not like that. There are portions of it that you receive, but we orchestrate our worship so you're participating. Why do you do that? 
What is the object of your worship when you're here? Is it whether you like the song? Or whether you are worshiping the God about whom the song sings? You see, if you're not clear on that, then we want to be clear together. We, we, want to, we want to together this morning look at scripture and this is going to be a broad overview. The, the, a theology of worship should take us multiple weeks of multiple sermons to cover completely on all the things that the Bible says about worship. But I want to focus us on these couple of things that worship is transformational. When we come, God is doing something in us and we'll talk about why that is. And I want us to understand why we do what we do if that is true that worship is transformational. See, worship is all over the Bible, isn't it? It starts in Genesis. It starts in the garden where Adam and Eve are placed there with the command of God, and they are blessed by God, and they're given all the things that they can do and the task that he gives them, and he tells them just about anything that there is for them except for one thing, don't eat that. And everything goes well until they decide to do what? Shift their worship away from God. Because they were passionate about God and what he said and the job that he'd given them and the, and the garden in which they were living. And then there was a temptation, what? Oh, he just doesn't want you to be like him. He really didn't say those things. And the switch is turned to self-worship, idolatry. And so it begins there. It moves right along when we see in... in I mean, we could stop in almost every section of Scripture, but it moves right along that we see in chapter 11 where all the people gather at the Tower of Babel, and they gather right there to build up a tower to God and to do what? To make a name for themselves. To worship themselves. And God had told them, be fruitful and multiply, and what? Subdue the world. Go, subdue it. Spread out and go do my work of spreading righteousness. But they want to make a name for God. For themselves, they're worshiping themselves. And God comes down and scatters them and calls Abram. And what's he tell Abraham? I will make your name great. And he's going to make his name great through his seed. And Galatians tells us that that is Christ himself. So we're already in Genesis, in the curse, and in chapter 11, seeing this nod to Christ where the center of worship will eventually turn. We get into Leviticus, and you know the story, when all of the, the sacrificial system is given, and then we get into that chapter where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who have been given the way to worship, the way to exercise their priesthood, to stand before God, between God and men, and represent man to God and God to men. And what do they do? They do what they want. They ignore what God said, and they do what they want, and God is not pleased. They bring strange fire instead of what he commanded, and God acts, and they existed no more. We can go all the way through Scripture and see kings that, that um, do things they're not supposed to do, and God says no, and he punishes them for them. But we end up with Jesus coming, the promised seed, and when he says in John chapter 4 that there is a time coming and now is that you won't worship in a place, you'll worship in a person. And he talks about himself. That clear teaching of scripture. And he says that worship will be in spirit and in truth. It'll be those who possess the spirit, those who are in Christ, those who, are, who um, I have redeemed. And it'll be in truth. The Bible will guide it. And the place is Jesus himself. So worship is constantly in the scriptures, but also false worship is in the scripture as well. And how does that happen? 
When people turn away from God, they tend to put their preferences and their priorities and their passions and their love and their obedience to the wrong things. And what happens then? They are transformed, but it's just not the right way. Worship will always transform you. Turn to Psalm 115. I'm not going to have you turn to a lot of scriptures this morning, but I am going to have you turn to a couple as we see this and demonstrate this transformational nature of worship. Psalm 115, verse 4. We could also go to Psalm 135 for these same uh, phrases, but 115, verse 4. Well, let's start in verse 1. Let's keep this in context. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? That is God's people saying, why should the nation say of us, where is our God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Listen, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Do you see the connection? If you're going to make things with your own hands and worship those things, how foolish are you? Especially when you're making them to mimic a God and use, and there is a God before you that speaks. There is a God before you that's powerful, that acts, and these do nothing. They can't speak, they can't walk, they don't breathe, they don't do anything. And if you build them and worship them, then you will become like them. Dumb. Not understanding the world. And this is what happens when people start putting their passions other places than God himself. If people find worth in things other than God, Now, don't hear me say that you can't go to a football game and enjoy yourself. Don't hear me say that you can't go shopping. Don't hear me say that. But hear me say that if you're going to do those things, are you doing them to the glory of God or are you doing them to the glory of yourself? Uh, is, Is the glory of God and his commandments in your mind so that when you go to the football game, you don't lose your mind at the football game and then come to church and sit on your hands and don't even sing? Your priorities are wrong if that happens, right? I'm, I'm not saying you have to raise your hand, but if you're, if you're not engaging in the word of God, the transformational word of God, and yet you can go out and fish or go to a game or go hunt or shop or do whatever it is that you do and get excited about it and passionate and pour everything you have into it, then your priorities, priorities are wrong and you're not doing those things to the glory of God. Because when you do those things to the glory of God, you start seeing the glory of God all over the place and you come with God's people to unite around the word and your passion overtakes you and it doesn't matter how you physically show it. it talks, the Bible talks about our commitment to that. Turn to Romans 1. Why is he taking us to Romans 1 for worship, for crying out loud? Is that really necessary? There's good in there, but there's also a lot of yucky stuff in there as well. Romans 1 is about worship. In many ways, it's about worship. Look at verse 18 in Romans 1. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth do they suppress? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made So they're without excuse. Now hear what's being said here. So far, the revelation of God will not save you. In Romans 1, the revelation has been talked about, will not save you. But it is enough to condemn you because it reveals attributes about God that should make you start searching him out and bowing before him. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God revealed himself in the creation. They suppressed that truth with a lie, and they did not honor him or give thanks for that. So they were transformed. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the for. Images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The transformational nature of worship is on full display here. Deny and suppress the truth of God and you will worship, but you will worship something that makes you lacking in wisdom. You will worship something other than the creator who should be worshiped and served. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to what? Acknowledge God, to worship him God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. You see the transformational nature of worship when we deny God? Now, let me me say, if you are here today professing faith in Christ, this is not you. But is it practically you, the way you engage with worship? Did you spend your passion and your priorities, and your love, and your devotion, way more on other things than you do on Christ. That when you go and do the things in the world, you're not thinking about Christ at all. You're not giving him glory for the blessings of being able to go to a shopping mall. You're not giving God the glory for the blessings of being able to go out into his creation. If you're not living in that way, then you're giving your passions and priorities without any nod to God, and you are living godless. 
We don't want to build that in us, do we? So in our corporate worship times, we are coming together with purpose in what we do and uh, the, how we do it, in what we're doing and how we do it. Because, as G.K. Beale says, we become what we worship. The best book on the theology of idolatry that I've read is by Beale. And he wrote this. In his book, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. He examines Isaiah 6 and the call of Isaiah and the speak to them and let them not hear and goes into that passage as well. We're not going to go into all of what he writes, but here's what he says in part of his conclusion. The biblical theological principle expressed in Isaiah 6 is that we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. And you've heard me tell you that before because I've quoted him before in this. And it's so applicable to us to understand the transformational part that we are hammering home right here. Isaiah wanted to revere, Beal continues. He wanted to reveal the Lord and reflected his holiness, resulting in restoration, where Israel revered its idols and reflected their spiritual blindness and deafness, resulting in ruin. And he goes through the whole Bible showing situation after situation after situation where this transformational aspect is clear in worship. That what we worship, we begin. And he talks about things like this. At Mount Sinai, when they build the golden calves at the bottom of the, of the mountain, and Moses comes down and he rebukes them. And the language in the scripture means that they're even, it's even language that you would use of a calf, that they become stiff-necked and they turn where they want to turn. And, and with language like that, stiff-necked, turned aside quickly out of the way, they've broken loose. That's the language that's used as if when they built the idols and worshiped them as God, God uses language that says they were transformed into the very thing that they worshiped but Moses he ascends the mountain after that and what happens to him he has to veil his face when he comes to the people because his visage is changed he worships God and he's transformed and in the presence of the people he doesn't want to discourage them and so he puts a veil over his face Moses becomes like Yahweh the people become like their idols so back to the question since we become what we worship what are you worshiping today And I've already challenged you not to make that answer simple. To think through whether you're here to worship the risen Savior in spirit and in truth. Jonathan Landry Cruz has a very valuable book called What Happens When We Worship. And he writes this. The more we order our lives around things we want, the more we form habits. And when habits take control, we crave even more. The habits that we set for ourselves train us to love and even deeper ardor and desire. We will be changed and transformed and shaped into whatever it is that we find to be of the utmost importance in this life. What are our, what are your ultimate desires? Fame, sex and pleasure, family, health. If we worship it, we will become like it. So since this is the case, we need to examine how we do things. And the first thing I would say is that we abide by the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. 
Now, I'm not going to go into a lot with that. I preached on that twice, Reformation Sunday, 2015, 2020, full sermons on what sola scriptura is and a defense of it. But it, it's telling us that we, scripture is enough and we need no more. When scripture speaks, we act. What scripture says, we, we obey and we abide by. It, it, scripture is all we need. We don't need tradition or in the time that they wrote the confessions uh, in, the, in the 1600s. We don't need the church. We don't need the church to tell us what God says. We have the Bible and we have the spirit. And so that we, the whole counsel of God is ours. The authority of scripture is, is for us and it ought to be believed as the 1689 says. Uh, the Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689. And it also tells us that the infallible rule of interpretation for Scripture is Scripture itself. It's not our minds. It's not even me. As I stand before you and I exegete Scripture every week, I'm not the infallible one. The Scriptures are. So you be Bereans and go to the Scripture and see if what I said is true. So we don't need anything else. It's Scripture that interprets Scripture. If we have a, a part of Scripture that's difficult for us to understand, we look and see what else the Scripture says about it to fortify that doctrine. So it's Scripture that interprets Scripture. And it's Scripture is the supreme judge of all of our controversies. It is the supreme judge of everything that we do. So we try to apply solo Scripture in everything we do, including worship. We as elders in the church are responsible for worship. Acts 6.4 talks about the apostles when they had the crisis of the widows. They said, pick for yourselves seven men, and they went to do the serving work. And in Acts 6.4, it says that the apostles' job, and as the New Testament it continues, we see the, the leaders of the local church are elders, so it's our job as well. Prayer and ministry of the word. Now, we also see that it's shepherding of the flock, and so that is the ministry of the word applied to the flock and equipping the flock. And worship is the primary ministry of the word that we engage in as a body. So it is our responsibility. So let's quickly answer five questions about worship from the scriptures. Apply sola scriptura to our worship. First, what is worship? We're, we're, we're focusing this morning on the New Testament and what the New Testament says about worship. We'll talk about why in a little bit, but that's what we're focusing on. So the several words that are, that are used in worship con, uh, uh, context in the New Testament translate to phrases like to bow down, to worship, to bless, to praise, to glorify, to fear. Those are all words used in the New Testament around worship. And I've already told you that our, our English word worship comes from an old Anglo-Saxon Saxon word that means to, to find worth, to find something worshipful, worth-ship. What we look for is it worthy. So worship, by that definition even, just a simple English definition, worship has to have a what? An object. An object. It will always have an object. You can't have worship. You can't just say, oh, I worship. What do you worship? Nothing. I don't worship anything. Well, if you're not worshiping anything, by definition, you're not what? You're not a worshiper. But you know what? God seeks worshipers. You know that? He's a worshiper seeking God. That's exactly what he says in what Jesus says in John chapter 4. He said, we worship God as spirit and we worship in spirit and truth for God seeks such worshipers, those who worship in spirit and truth. So God, it's the only time we see God seeking. He's seeking worshipers. And if God seeks worshipers, don't you want to be sought by God? Well, worship in spirit and truth. So we have to see what the Bible says about that. Second question, 
who must we worship and how should we approach him? So we've already talked about the object of our worship. And the object of our worship in Christian worship is clearly God represented in the person and work of Christ and empowered by the Spirit, our triune God. But scriptures also reveal how we are to worship. That's where we plug in the Spirit and in truth. How do we worship? In Spirit and truth. Not, not the mechanics of it yet. It, and if that guides us, then that puts us in a box already, doesn't it? It means believers are gathering to worship. If a non-believer comes in, they can't worship a God they don't know, but they can watch us worship. And we're worshiping in truth according to the scriptures. So the scriptures guide everything that we do. It's the central tenet of our life with God and the only acceptable response to God who has revealed himself to us. So when we come together, that's the basic premise. God speaks, we respond, right? God speaks, we respond. That's why we have calls to worship. That's why we have scripture readings. That's why we have preaching. That's why we sing doctrinal songs. We're reminding us what God has said and we're responding to him as he speaks. God has spoken in his son. We remind ourselves of that and we, and we respond to that when we take the Lord's Supper. God speaks and we respond. Well, the other one question I've already answered, who should lead in this? And let me flesh that out some. Elders are responsible in a local church because they're the ones responsible for the ministry of the word. Does that mean elders have to lead worship? No, it doesn't have to be an elder. It has to be someone who's submitted to the elders and understands theology enough to pick out good theological songs and to arrange things according to the scriptures. And so we would love to have that. I would love for this, let me just be honest, can I? I would love for this not to be the Rob show every Sunday where I put together the worship service and I lead it and I preach. I would love for somebody to have theological understanding and musical understanding and get them involved in that and just pass that off. What a glorious thing because we would still be giving oversight to that. Well, let me answer a question that maybe you haven't answered yet. Must we worship together with the church? Is that something we must do? Or is the old canard that I can worship God the same on the golf course as I can in worship? Is that true? In one sense, you can worship God on the golf course, right? What a beautiful place to magnify the creation back to God and give him glory for his creative abilities. One sense is true, but the Bible is very clear. In Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, let us, not, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We see that demonstrated for us and modeled in Acts chapter 2. And they, that is the church that gathered in Acts chapter 2, the new nation, brand new spirit called church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all who believed were together and day by day attending the temple together. That's where the Christians worshiped. And in Solomon's portico, they worshiped as well. And this is what they did. We also see worship. Remember, worship is transferred in the new covenant to a person, right? To Jesus. And where does Jesus reside? In his believers. The Holy Spirit resides in, our, in believers, so when we gather to worship, God is dwelling with us. And he's dwelling with us, pleasing when we are exalting his son and, and expressing our gratitude to him for the, the salvation that we have been given. Five times in the New Testament, the body of Christ, the plural you, is 
used to describe um, the church at worship because the church is called the temple of God collectively. Now in the Old Testament, where did God dwell? He dwelt in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And now he dwells with us when we gather. Only one time is it used individually. God is also more glorified when people come together and to worship. More people come together rather than he, there is just one. He's more glorified with more voices when they come together. Witnessing this glory being multiplied to God can bring lost people to their knees. According to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, But if all prophecy, that's as opposed to speaking to tongue, in tongues, which is the context here in, in 1 Corinthians 14, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you, the church. This is what John Piper was alluding to when the first, the first paragraph of his book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad, the supremacy of God in missions, he writes this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Now, he's true in that, isn't he? Worship abides forever. We're practicing here for when we get to the new heavens and new earth and we experience worship more along of what John just read from Revelation 4 and 5. And we're heading to that time, never ceasing to give praise, never having any sin pulling us away from the one that we worship. An old theologian and preacher, John Broadus, wrote in 1879, why ought we to worship God? Because it is due him. And because it is good for us. Now, how can you get more simple than that? It is due him. He is the only one worthy of worship. Now, think back to the thing I said about, from John 4. of He is a worshiper seeking God. How arrogant is that? Do you go around seeking worshipers? What does that say about you? I'm worthy of worship. But we know that God is the only one worthy of worship. And if he did not seek that, if it wasn't expected, if people give him worship, he, wasn't be, he wouldn't be God. He knows in his own being who he is and he's seeking those who recognize that and who he's created and who he has redeemed to come before him. Now we get to the meat of this. Does God care how he's worshipped? Can we just do anything we want when we come together? Are, are, we, are we free just to do anything? Yes and no. That's it. I'll quit right there. How's that? Yes and no. Scripture reveals directives and functions in the New Testament. It gives us certain things that we are to do in worship. Those directions and functions lead to principles of how we do it, and we call those elements. I talked about this this morning in Sunday school. We talk about elements and forms. Elements of worship are those things that God commands us to do. So we look at the New Testament and take our lead from the New Testament. And I... I alluded a little bit in Sunday school to these ideas of worship that have flown through history, grown through history um, out of the Reformation. That we have the regulative principle of worship and the normative principle. So I'm not going to go to defend all of these, but it basically says this. Luther's the one who categorized this first. And he basically said in three different statements, anything that's not forbidden in worship, we are free to do. Anything that's not forbidden. 
Calvin, on the other hand, limits worship according to the scriptures that he sees, and he limits it and says that God speaks about worship. So those that fall into the regulative principle, which we do, welcome to the regulative principle. You've lived under it since I've been here. So we do fall under that. There's debate in how to order the scriptures. Can we go to the Psalms as, as our biblical justification for using instruments in worship? Well, if we can go to the Psalms in that, then why don't we have a biblical justification and command to wear priestly garments and to have incense? If we go to the Old Testament for one, we have to go to the Old Testament for other. And if we press it far enough, what about animal sacrifices? Well, Jesus fulfilled all that. Yes, but all of that is part of the old covenant. That Jesus came and inaugurated a new covenant. And that new covenant said the old covenant now is obsolete. We're not talking, I'm not getting into discussion on the law now. I'm talking about the covenants and what Hebrews says. You know what we looked at when we went through Hebrews. So there's disagreement on how we might do this. So do we have instruments in worship? Well, clearly we do. Clearly we use them. So what is our justification? Because the elements of worship in the New Testament, and we'll talk about what these are in a minute, but are things like singing. We're commanded, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual spiritual songs to one another. And one side of it says speak them. That's even another debate. But we say we're supposed to sing psalms. We're supposed to sing with each other. And what we do, the word of Christ dwells richly among us. So what forms might we use to obey the command, the element of singing? Well, instruments are one of those. We don't ever want our instruments to cover up our voices. We don't want it to be a show of a worship team. I'm not knocking other churches, but a lot of churches have more of a show than uh, congregational worship. We don't want that because what is important is congregation participating and singing and it's the words that we sing so this discussion about the leading to the new testament we look primarily to the new testament for for our elements we can look to history we can look to tradition that's not wrong and we can have a tradition that is biblical we can have a tradition that is unbiblical right if it's unbiblical what do we do with our tradition sola scriptura says change it get rid of it but if it's biblical or it is, it, it is something that supports one of those things that are commanded in Scripture, we are free to do that. So things like the function of worship. The function of worship. What are we doing? The gathered body hears from God and responds in, to God's revelation. That's the function. The purpose, to glorify God and disciple believers. There was a book written many years ago by um, Calvin Johansson called a Disciple-Making Music Ministry. It changed my whole life 20 years ago when I read that or more. Because he made the point, and I agree, this is biblical, that worship is discipling. And we just proved that this morning, didn't we? Because worship transforms. Discipleship is a transformation. Us bowing to the word of God through the power of the spirit and being transformed, being sanctified, becoming more like Christ. So we want everything we do in our gatherings to be transformable. And if it's going to be that way, it has to be based in the word that transforms We've already talked about the elements. The elements are the what, the forms, or the how. You can remember it that way. Truth, truth is scripture. The message is Christ and all that God has done in Christ for salvation and for us now as believers. But there are areas that it doesn't speak clearly on in the the, uh, forms of how we do that, how we carry it out, the patterns, the organization of things, so how we order our worship service. We're to have preaching, but it doesn't tell us in the Bible whether preaching should occur 36 and a half minutes into the, after the call to worship or whether it should occur first, second, or last. 
We're told to do certain things, but we don't have a command for a certain liturgy, a certain order. And that's where we're free to do those things. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. Well, the regulative principle of worship, we can go through dozens of scripture passages that prove this to us, that the regulative principle of worship says God cares about how he's worshiped, and he's spoken about that. That's what it says. God cares about how he's worshiped, and he's spoken about that. We've talked about some of those ways um, with Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. We've talked about things like that, Uzzah and the ark. No one was supposed to touch the ark. The priests were given (coughs) ways to move the ark with the pole, the acacia poles, and the ark started to fall, and Uzzah thought it would be better to have his filthy hands touch it than the created earth, and God punished him for it. We can go through case after case of kings, who go in pragmatically. King Saul pragmatically went in to be able to offer the incense so he could take care of what he wanted to do because the priest was late. And he lost his kingship over that act because God cares about how he is worshipped. It is not all about the external. The Old Testament, the internal is reflected in the external. God says, I'm a holy God, you're a sinful people, here's how you will approach me so that I can be your God in your midst and you can approach me. And there was a system for that. And it was ordained by God, so it's how God said to be worshipped. But he always cared about the heart more, didn't he? He cared, he, God was, remember in Malachi, when God said something to the effect, I don't have the verse memorized, but in the first chapter, would that one of you would come up and shut the door to the temple because your worship is not pleasing to me. We've already seen that in Isaiah as well, haven't we? Your worship is not pleasing to me. You're doing all these things, but your heart is far from me. God is looking for that contrite heart and gentle spirit before him. So he's always been concerned about the heart. In the New Testament, it's connection to Christ and all that he is. So he's still concerned about the heart. How we express that is what we're talking about this morning in worship. And I'm not going to take the time to go through all of the passages that I have um, before it, but we have summarized several of them. And when we get into the New Testament, we see that one that gives us all fear, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They were coming in doing right things. They were giving offerings, right? Remember what chapter 2 and 4 tell us, that they had all things in common. They weren't living in a commune where they gave all their worldly possessions to the elders to distribute, but they were living open-handed that if somebody had need, they would would sell a piece of property and make sure that need was met. And Ananias and Sapphira fell fell into that, but when they did fall into that, they kept part of the proceeds for themselves and they refused to disclose that. So they were trying to make themselves look better. And when Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? God killed them. So this is, an ever, this is a, a never-changing God that we worship. Now, I'm not saying if you come with false worship, God will kill you. I'm saying God doesn't change. He's holy. So worship is serious for us. Not serious in that we come and we never have joy, but serious that we don't want to do it according to our whims, as the confession state, but according to what God has said. So let's talk about these elements, and as we go through these elements from the New Testament, we'll talk about how we apply them. One of the elements that are given to us in corporate worship in the New Testament is the public reading of Scripture. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, Paul tells Timothy. We're to give that attention. It's not just to be done in passing. It's not just to be done a little bit. You're going to give attention to it. We heard... um, uh, um, 
a document from the second century from Justin that we quoted that I quoted this morning that talked about they gave the, the reading of the scripture all the time they could until there was no time left they gave the reading of the scripture and they also expounded upon it and had the Lord's Supper and all of that as well but much was given to the reading of the scripture and a scripture is powerful sharper than a two-edged sword, able to do that soul work in us, as Hebrews tells us, why would we not give attention to it? That's why we read long passages of Scripture. It's not the length of them that matters. It's us being just just overwhelmed and, and baking and basking in the Word of God. We want that. We want that to be. So give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Does that mean it's just what John did today? That John came up, told you what passage he was reading, you turned to it, he read, you listened. No, we proved that in our worship service, didn't we? We had multiple unison readings. We often have responsive readings. Sometimes we read here. Sometimes we have people pop up in different areas in the congregation to read. <clears throat> it's, those are the forms that we want to be varied to involve people, all because the Bible says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. The Bible also tells us to preach. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He also tells Timothy a few verses later, devote yourself to exhortation and to teaching. So we devote ourselves to exhortation and to teaching. We do this in our growth groups. We do it in our discipleship groups. We do it here. We want to open up the word and read it, put it in its context, <clears throat> original context, pull out those things that affect us today and that we are to do so that we are obedient to it and equip you to do it and send you off encouraged and exhorted to do so. That's why the sermon is the center, just like it was in the Reformation. In the Reformation, the center of the worship and the center of the buildings was the Lord's Supper table. In the, in the Reformation, with the Protestant Reformation, the center of the design of the building was the pulpit. Not because of the man who stood behind it, but because of the word that came from it. Because when we stand here, we speak for God. And that is a knee-knocking, fear-driven thing. Can I tell you that? <clears throat> it is a fearful thing to speak for God. And yet he calls men to stand in front of the body and feed them. Did you feel the holy fear when you preached twice in the last month? It's a fearful thing. So, but we know that the word teaches it. We know that we're all benefiting from it. And there's different styles. Luke preaches different than I do. There's different styles in, in the way we do it. We might place it differently in the sermon. We've had sometimes in this, <clears throat> or in the worship service, we have sometimes that we've had the sermon first. You walk in, you sing a song, and I preach. And then all of the rest of the reading and the, and the Lord's Supper and whatever else we're doing in the singing, all of that is done after the sermon. So there's really not a command of where it goes, but there is a command to preach. Elements and forms. Pray. Public reading of scripture, praying <clears throat> and preaching. Praying. Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Two chapters later, another interlude about the church. After Peter and John were commanded not to preach and released from the council, the first thing the believers did was to pray to God in their community. And when they had prayed, 
says Acts 2, or Acts 4, 23, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, remember we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, God working in such a miraculous, fearful way? That brought revival to the people then. They were, they were feared by the people outside. They feared the Lord because when God moved to the obedience of his people, he blessed the people and the church continued to grow. And the holiness of the church continued by being obedient to the word. So we pray in different ways. We are led in prayer. We have, sometimes we've broken up in prayer. Um, we, we do prayer in, in different ways in the worship service because we're not, we're not told exactly how that should look. But we do pray because it's required of us. Finally, singing. Kind of the look of the day, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We talked about this a lot in Sunday school, and we've demonstrated it here. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is making the case that Jesus identifies with these people. Remember that? He identifies both in life and in death in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for their sin, and the first proof, seat proof text that he uses to prove that is Psalm 22, 22. And he says to obey it. He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So even Jesus, in his identification with these people, talks about singing praises to God together in congregation. It doesn't tell us what to sing except truth. And this is why we choose what we sing very carefully. I was having a conversation with somebody before between Sunday school and and here about the wisdom of singing songs by heretical groups. So there are groups out there that that, that might have some songs that are decent lyrics and some songs that are not decent lyrics. So should we sing from those groups like Hillsong and like Bethel and other Elevation and others? And we would say, no, we're not going to sing those. And I would say, I don't want you to listen to them. Because even if it is a song that is not heresy, you're going to listen to more stuff out of them that maybe might be heresy. And if you're directed to the heretical teachers behind those worship teams, I don't want to see you go there. So we don't sing those songs. Even the good songs by bad groups, we don't sing them. Because we're concerned, because music is discipling, what we sing is, and our worship is transformational. If we see, sing things that shoot you and move you and push you toward places that are not true, then we're sending you to the wrong place for transformation. So we don't do those. And I recommend not to do that. But we sing all styles of music. Well, we don't sing all styles. We haven't done reggae or, <laughs> or punk or rap, right? So we don't do all styles, but we do do what we consider traditional hymns, right? Because there are people who think the hymns are what Jesus sang, just like, the, just like we sang, you know, 100 years ago. That's not true. But we sing standard older hymns. That's great. That's a form that conveys truth and, and supports truth. We sing contemporary songs, but we don't want the song to overwhelm the message. And we don't want to sing just a so-so message because the music is good. We want to sing strong, disciple-making, transformational words. Some of them are right out of the Psalms. 
Some of them are exact words. The song we sing that I wrote called Where Shall I Go based on one Psalm 139, that is exactly the ESV version of a, a string of verses in Psalm 139. I didn't change any. I think I changed two places to, to match the meter. When you've written things, you stuck very close to the text in some, and you've free-formed others, right? And we sing several of those. So we're not bound to sing only scriptural words, even though there was a time in the 1400s the church banned any other singing. We are free. Those are forms. And we want to make sure we're singing truth, and we want to make sure we're singing. You are singing. You're heard. It's your voice that heard. Everything else undergirds it. So even though we see clashing symbols in the Old Testament, we'll use clashing symbols where we have a clashing symbol player and where it undergirds your singing, but not when it gets in the way of it because the element is what our command is. So that gives you a little bit of insight into why we plan what we do. The order changes some, but if you watch closely, there are certain things that pretty much stay the same. There are certain forms that work well for what we're trying to do. There are some people that would look at all of worship and they would say that, that worship, there's a, there's a pattern of worship all through the Bible that we should stick to. And they have the same liturgy every single Sunday. They may change their hymns or they may ch- and they'll change their pray- they will change their hymns and their prayers and their scripture readings. But the order is the same every Sunday because they're trying to obey what they think the scripture says. We're not bound by that because we think that's one way but not the only way. So we are free and we base everything not, and, and some people, went, some churches, very good churches, churches that friends of mine pastor that you would know that they, they order their worship service in such a way that they are hearing um, truth from a, a certain number of categories every week. Every week we're going to hear of certain categories of a, of a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon, which we do um, often. Either it's formal, like Luke led us in a few weeks ago, or it's informal in a prayer. But we don't do it every Sunday, but they would have it every Sunday. They would have hymns in the same spot. They would have um, the, their scripture readings would be the next chapter after the one before. They would read this chapter this week and this chapter next week and this chapter next week. We think that the transformational discipling aspect of our worship is that whatever the central text is for that day, that we just wash you in it from start to finish. Those ideas of the central text in our preaching and our reading and in our singing and in everything that we do, that's the way we try to approach things. And the only other thing I'll say about these forms and elements is in the preaching, there's all different styles of preaching. I'm preaching different today than I usually do, aren't I? I'm preaching a topical sermon. I usually just take whatever, wherever I left off last week, that's what I do next week. Everything we do needs to be expositional. It needs to take what the scripture says, and that's what we're teaching. But there's freedom in these things. But there's not freedom not to preach. And that has been a movement in recent times. Preaching is old and outdated. We just need to sit around and talk about the scriptures together. Now, preaching hasn't always looked like what it looks today. But this is the way we approach it because we're commanded to do so. There's a mystical, emotional aspect of worship that's in conjunction of the word. We talked this morning about the different reformers and how they approached it. One reformer was afraid of the music, that it would overtake them and pull them away from the word. Zwingli just didn't want that. Martin Luther thought the music carried words and words carry the word of God. So we should use music to carry the word of God. So they looked at things differently. We believe we're created with emotional, with emotions. We just don't want our emotions to override knowledge. We don't want our emotions to override wisdom. 
So we want songs that the music supports the tenor and tone of the, the text that we're singing. We're not going to sing a lament with a, with a very happy, up-tempo, triumphant song. We're going to sing a lament in the way it's intended. So we, we do want you to engage your emotions. We just don't want your emotions to be the point. We want the word of God to be the point and to be emotional over the word of God, not the, song, not the tune that we sing. Two more things here. <clears throat> when you are flippant with worship attendance, and no, no one is in my mind, so don't think I'm talking about you. <clears throat> but if what I'm saying fits, I am talking about you, just not intentionally. Does that make sense? When you're flippant about your worship attendance, you miss out on blessing. Other people miss out on the blessing of your voice joining. And when you have children, you're teaching them that worship is not important. Whatever you decided to do is more important than worship. I'm not saying you can't take vacations and be gone out of church. That's not the point. But if your habits, remember, what you pursue with your passions will transform you. So when your occasional misses turn into regular misses, turn into I don't care misses, and they will, and other things will go along with that. Your passion for the believers, your fellowship in the body. If you sit up front, you'll probably start moving to the back. And I'm serious about that. That's one of the thing, ways I know someone struggle is when they move from their seat and start moving toward the back. So they think they're further away. It happens. So when you're flippant about your worship attendance and you have children, you're teaching them that worship isn't important. When you don't press into the body in other ways for fellowship and discipleship, you're teaching your children it doesn't matter. And I guarantee you, when they grow up, worship will not be important to them. I guarantee it until God gets a hold of them in a different way. This is important things that we're talking about here. One more thing I'm going to say, one thing I want to start doing to help you see this um, when Paige and I were at the Sing Conference, <clears throat> I don't remember who it was. Do you remember who it was that talked about sending out the email in advance? Was it Matt? Matt Merker, maybe? He sends out an email Friday or Saturday with a background of everything they're doing in worship, why they've chosen the hymns, why they've chosen the reading, so that people who choose to, that they can engage with it so that when we come in on Sunday morning, if you've done your green sheet, you know what I'm preaching on. You've done some work in that. Well, he has found that it's benefited his body greatly that the body would be able to then um, know what's being done. From the call to worship to the benediction that you would see what method was behind it. I intend to start doing that um, so that you can see that in advance and share that with your children. And that you might know, because sometimes we're stringing things together in songs and readings and, and things like that, that when you get done, I don't know if any of you have seen the connection or not. So I want you to know that in advance, and I'm committing to you to start doing that in one form or another. Well, let me say there's much more that we can say. Uh, maybe there'll be some day where we do a whole series on worship. Um, I'm, I'm not promising that, but maybe we will do that. But on Reformation Sunday, when we think about the recovery of congregational participation, I want you to understand that the Bible drives us. It's not my preferences. I put together the worship services, but it's not my preferences. And I don't want you to get mad when my choices don't meet your preferences. Because we sing songs I don't like. Did you know that? We sing songs I don't like. I love the text, but I don't like the music. And I don't have time to write new music, so I sing the songs I don't like as much. I know you never feel that way. I know. <laughs> Let me close with this. 
Again, this is Jonathan Landry Cruz and what happens when we worship. The primary means of edification and discipleship comes through the exhortation and explanation of Scripture in the context of the rhythms of corporate worship. In other words, if we do not worship properly, we will not witness properly. If we do not worship properly, we will not be walking in step with the Spirit and growing in Christian maturity. Worship is transformational. It's focused on God, and it will change you. And it's our passionate desire that worship is a transformational process for us. I've said forever that the first level of my counseling is right here in the pulpit. When our body submits to the word, not to me, to the word of God and applies, much less biblical counseling happens. I'm not opposed to biblical counseling. I do it all the time. We have several people who are involved in biblical counseling all the time. That's not the purpose. The purpose is, what if we're all transformed the same in our corporate worship services? What a glorious thing that will be as the dying world looks at us worship and drops on their face before God. Father, thank you for your grace to us, for your kindness to us. We are, we are so aware of what we've been given as a heritage starting from the Reformation. We are so thankful that you worked through these men, and we are products of that. And we pray, Lord, that as we pursue corporate worship, that you would continue to open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word every time we gather, that we would see the importance of gathering together in, in the body when you are most glorified and letting the word wash over us and through us and encourage us and convict us and conform us to the image and likeness of your son. And all because we get to do things so glorious as sing together. And to hear the word read among us and to us and by us. And unite our hearts in prayer and be edified and exhorted out of your word. To be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. To be able to baptize as you bring converts. What a a glorious time, Father, of fellowship that brings you glory and transforms us. And so we are grateful for that. And we ask you to keep us good stewards as we grow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.